Hi, this is Haig Balian. You are listening to the Beijing Sessions. Uh, so this is the last episode of the Beijing Sessions before I take a summer break. I guess you could call it the end of season one. I'm gonna take the next few weeks to think about what went well, what needs to change, what needs to improve. The goal really is to make something great,、uh, to make something entertaining. Maybe that'll be something more conversational, less formal, and I'm really happy to have the outlet to talk to some really interesting people, and you know, to put something like this together every week for almost five months. I've loved doing it, so thank you so much for listening. So I'll be back in、uh, August after a few weeks. Uh, traveling in China, in Guilin, Shanghai,、um, heading to the mountains north of Beijing as well, and I'm looking forward to it. So this week, I get to geek out on something I really care about.、Um, I talked to Dr. Katie Kummer and Professor Linda Stefano. They edited a book called Asian Revitalization. It's about、uh, adaptive reuse, and I'll let them define the concept. They're, they're the experts. I had so much fun talking to them.、Um, normally, I would edit this conversation like crazy,、um, <laughs> but I thought I, I thought I'd throw caution to the wind this week and and leave my dumb jokes in.、Uh, so okay, so here's my interview with Dr. Katie Kummer and Professor Lynn DeStefano. This month, a new book was published called *Asian Revitalization: Adaptive Reuse in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore*. The book looks at the issues around adaptive reuse in those megacities, and,、uh, in my opinion, makes a very strong case that cities should make adaptive reuse a big part of their development plans. The editors of *Asian Revitalization* are Dr. Katie Kummer and Professor Lynn DeStefano. Dr. Katie Kummer is the founding director of the Bachelor of Arts in Conservation degree at the University of Hong Kong. She's in Victoria, British Columbia, where she is the principal of Kummer Heritage Consulting. And Professor Linda Stefano is a founder of the Division of Architectural Programs at the University of Hong Kong. She's in Toronto. Dr. Kummer and Professor Stefano, welcome to the Beijing Sessions. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. I have a lot of questions about the book,、Go、and、ahead. I do think that we'll have to、uh, define adaptive reuse and the case for it, and what we can learn from the book. But this week, something happened that I think shows why your book is so important. On, on June 14, the South China Morning Post reported that the Hong Kong Post Office building is slated to be demolished in a redevelopment plan. Did Did you read that article? Are you aware of this?、Um, I'm not aware, but I've been very aware、uh, for a number of years、uh, that the building was really being eyed for demolition. Yeah. So this week it it came out that 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 it was being demolished, and one of the quotes in the story just leapt off the stage.、Uh, sorry, one of the quotes in the story <laughs> just leapt off the page for me. It's from Ivan Ho Manu, who's an advisor for the land bid, and he's skeptical about the ideas for conservation. He says it seems that nowadays when we think of preserving anything, we think of converting it to a museum. But with technology nowadays, actually many museums are going virtual. For physical museums, I am not sure what it will end up like in the future. Now that was the quote, and and just as an aside, beyond everything else, if you need to use the <laughs> word nowadays in an argument, 
much less twice. <laughs> You've probably already lost it. Um, now, if you read your chapter on the evolution of adaptive reuse in Hong Kong, that quote makes a bit more sense than if you just read it without any context at all. Um, so wh- where do you think Ivan Ho Manu was coming from and, and how would you respond to him? So this is an article from yesterday, is that correct? From from the 14th of June. Okay, right. so I'm, I'm a day behind you. So 16th right now. So my initial reaction is this sounds like a quote from 10, 15 years ago. I, I am amazed at this reaction because it's a very antiquated view to think that, okay, old buildings, we turn them into museums, and that's not at all what I think is, is the case now. And so I'm just so shocked to hear this be said um, literally in 2021, two days ago. Lynn, what about you? What's your response? Well, I think this goes back to the notion that somehow when we talk about conservation, we're really talking about preservation, keeping the building the way it was historically. And if you have that mindset, then of course you think, God, what are we going to use it for? Oh, museum. <laughs> but, but those of us who have worked in museums, because in my second career, I was a chief curator, we know that historic buildings or older buildings that are converted into museums, all kinds of problems, not the best use. So, so you haven't read the article, uh, so I, I probably I, I should have said I, I just made that assumption. I'm sorry about that. Um, so, uh, so I. <laughs> You're so cruel. <laughs> no, I just I just made this assumption. I don't know why. I just I I, I was thinking, do I should I send this and and and. I wish you had. I I will I will go look at it right after we finish yeah. talking because no. so yeah I know which doesn't help at all. But I'm intrigued. Having have having not read the article. Do they talk about the old post, post office building that we've already lost? A different building than this one? Yes. Um, so there is, if it doesn't, that's okay. But there is a legacy in Hong Kong of um, these experiences of, of where we've already lost buildings. And I think as a result, there is a much fiercer reaction than there perhaps necessarily would have been. And so there was a very beautiful colonial post office building that was demolished years ago. Um, and if it still existed today, it definitely would, it would never be demolished, it would be well maintained and because and, it really was an icon. And so I wonder if part of this is a little bit of a, of a knee jerk reaction going, we lost that one, we can't lose this one too. Um, yeah. while, while also recognizing sort of there is a shift in an appreciation of sort of modern buildings in a way now that there wasn't necessarily sort of 20 years but- ago. So, sorry. Yeah, no, um, a good points, Katie. But I think there's some other things to consider. The post office, um, it actually was right at the edge of the harbor because the mail came in on, on, on ships, on boats. So over time, with the reclamation of that area, there was no longer that proximity. So the context changed. And certainly with heritage, with conservation, it's important to understand that context is important to how we define the value of a particular building. So it's a little more complex than just, oh, it's going to be demolished. There's a long, complicated history. One, it connects to the Star Ferry Pier. And, you know, there's all of these elements. It's so interconnected with so much um, that mm-hmm. I, I absolutely, I'm not at all surprised with how this has turned out. 
So, so let's let's start from the beginning. Um, when you use the term adaptive reuse, what 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 do you mean? Let let's just say the terminology varies according to country and time. The phenomenon of reusing buildings has been with us as long as we have recorded history. It really is that simple. And I think the challenge today is looking at adaptive reuse as a way to address issues of sustainability, issues of community building, issues of city building, so that it's taken on a much larger role in how we begin to conceptualize what we want in the future for our cities, our places to be. Adaptive reuse is not new. And I would say in its simplest of terms, adaptive reuse is the, the taking of an old building and giving it a new use. It is my one sentence definition as to what adaptive reuse is. But then I would say in response to Katie, it doesn't have to be a new use, i.e. different from the old use. Um, there are two ways of looking at it. It can be a continuation of use, although technically that is not a strict definition of adaptive reuse, or it can be a new use. And where we get into interesting discussions is how we decide what is the most appropriate new use. And who are we serving? Yeah, and in the book, I mean, you, you mentioned that this has happened for, for centuries, really. And you mentioned the Pantheon in Rome and the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, which, by the way, by family lore, it was like an architect from my family who designed it, the Balian family. But, really? Um, Fantastic. Well, the, 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 the Balian brothers were the, you know, the architects, the Balian family were the architects of, of that. Ah. I don't know exactly if that was like, I th my dad said, they were. I, I don't know. I'm probably going to cut this from this. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, don't. I am don't. honored to be in your presence. <laughs> you are the very first to ever say that. But thank you. I, I appreciate that very much. Uh, so, and, and then, you know, there are examples of repurposing old buildings. And, you know, of course, the, the High Sophia was uh, was a church before, mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it became what it is now, and, and which is a... Um, I guess it's a mosque. I, I no, no. Yeah, so it, but it had a mu it had a museum period in the middle there. It only just recently became a mosque again after a lot of lobbying. Um, but it's great, right? I mean, I think it's wonderful that there that these buildings can have these layers of history and these different periods and these different chapters, um, and allows them to continue to to function and be relevant and be of use. Um, because I think, as you know, Lynn sort of alluded to, with regards to sustainability concerns right now. We need to use what we have. I, we, we had another conversation about this, and I absolutely love this quote about the greenest building is one that already exists uh, from Carl Elefante, from the former president of the American Institute of Architects. And it's just such a good quote, and it's so true. And so, you know, if a couple of centuries, it's a museum, it's a mosque, it's a church, that's wonderful that it gets to continue to function and to, to, to be relevant and of use to society. And I think as Lynn was saying, that's the really key thing is that it is of use to the community and to society. And I think sometimes with some of these projects, it just doesn't fit and they don't succeed. A, a concept uh, I'd never heard of before, but I really appreciate now is this concept uh, of embodied energy. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is embodied energy and, and, and why is it important? You build a building, it takes resources. 
um, usually refined resources. That's energy. And so the building essentially expresses that embodied energy. Um, so if, if you just have to get your head around, and I know it is, it is hard for many people to think that when you cut down a tree, you take it to the mill, it's formed into timber that's usable for construction, or you take the clay, it is made into bricks, all that energy that it takes to do that. Um, and it goes on and on for every single building element that we can identify in any structure. So that's what's meant by embodied. Um, and if you think about that, you think about sustainability, you think, how can you waste that? How so can you waste it? It literally is all the energy that went into building it and making it be the existing structure that it is. And so it's recognizing that, okay, to demolish it and build anew, you're literally wasting all that energy and then doing a whole nother set of embodied energy in the new construction. And so fair enough, it may, by modern building code, be more efficient in this way and the other, but the, the, the single act of demolishing and removing that embodied energy is so wasteful. And it's so unnecessary in so many cases. Um, and I think it's so important. It was a really neat idea, I think, that I, I learned a lot more about through this book um, in, in thinking about all the other elements that go into a construction. Because it isn't just the physical side of it, the material side of it. It is talking about money and time and effort. All of that is my understanding of the embodied energy. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's the whole package. Almost, almost every Asian city I've lived in has had its challenges when it comes to development and, and development priorities. Uh, in Phnom Penh, the buildings of Van Molivan and other works of new Khmer architecture are, are deteriorating and, and in some cases have been demolished. In Manila, uh, which was flattened by the Second World War, preservationists still have to fight to keep what few pre-war buildings are left from being demolished. And of course, where I live now in Beijing, the city gates were demolished decades ago, and there are fewer hutong areas than ever before. Um, your book has lessons for other cities, but you've concentrated on Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore. Uh, why did you choose to take a look at those cities? We did it because the team that worked on the book knew these three places best, but that's not to say we didn't know other places. One of the important um, aspects of our decision was we had led a number of field studies to both Singapore and Shanghai. And of course the program, you know, is in Hong Kong. So we felt very secure. We didn't have to be defensive about what we chose, um, how we approach those three places. But it, you know, I think that our basic framework can apply to almost any place in Asia, if not the rest of the world. And I say that because I'm now in Toronto for most of the time. And I think, ah, I've been in Hong Kong for over 20 years. I'm now here. It's a different place. No, it's not different. <laughs> The issues are the same. So our approach actually, I think, is actually works on a comparative basis beyond three places. 
Yeah, and I think it, it was a logical place for us to sort of start. And, and I think because we had the multiple years of going and looking at these projects and kind of seeing them when they began and then seeing them as they continued or seeing as they folded. And, you know, I think being able to have that continued connection went a really long way. And also they were three cities that actually have quite a long, you know, a longevity with regards to adaptive reuse. And I think there are certain other areas that are getting their feet wet. And hopefully this book can be a bit of inspiration for them, but we thought it worthwhile to really catalog um, some cities that have multiple decades worth of this approach and seeing how it evolved and how it changed. You know, you start with the museums and whatnot in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and then you have more creative new uses. Um, and I think it, it provided a, a more interesting cross-sectional lens to be looking at these three areas that also had lots of different types of buildings that were being reused. It really kind of gave it a very easy way for us to look at the three, seeing the similarities, seeing the differences, seeing the takeaways um, from all of them, and just seeing the different challenges, the similarities as well. So uh, I, I think it worked well for our background and our experience. But I, I, I'm not sure you'll want to put this into um, the podcast, um, but we, but but we are working on a sequel to the book, so we'll be looking at a major site in India, a major site in Malaysia, and Macau. Um, but I bring this up because our contacts in Malaysia, who Katie also knows, said that they felt that the first book and anticipating the second book was very important strictly from the point of view of documentation. Mm -hmm. So in Malaysia, there has never been any kind of a record about this whole area of adaptive reuse and how it fits into the planning and conservation scenario because it's so important. And, and actually hearing that comment has made me feel even uh, prouder, if you will, Katie, about mm. what we accomplished in the first book, because it's, it really is, it's a documentation of a particularly important approach to conservation and planning that benefits communities. Mm -hmm, and, and, and we've been able to capture that. And so hopefully we can do it again for India, Malaysia, and Macau. Yeah, well, actually, Lynn, I was just going to sort of piggyback on you with your comment about Toronto and the, you know, the universality of the experience with this. And uh, one thing that I would say now having moved to North America from Hong Kong, where I've spent most of my life, um, I find that we are very hard on Hong Kong and hard on these Asian I centers. Know. Uh, now that I've seen the North American perspective and actually how, you know, challenging adaptive reuses here and how not as common as I thought it was going to be. You know, I actually think what is happening in Hong Kong, Shanghai and Singapore and all these other Asian cities is so inspirational for North America. And I Agreed. think that's really exciting and wonderful to, to see and acknowledge because I think when we were there and so focused on it, we're very critical and they're not doing enough. And they're, you know, but the truth of it is the amount of time, energy and resources that are going into these projects that are not cheap, they're not easy, but they're so worthwhile from so many different ways. I think it really is quite inspirational to see. It is. And when you talk about inspirational, Katie, increasingly, Katie and I really saw 
the importance of social value to communities when we talk about adaptive reuse. Uh, you, you can say economic value, great, you know, commercial operations and a nice pretty building, all that. But what is the benefit to the community? Mm-hmm. So it's when we look at, at adaptive reuse as something that can add to the functioning, the integration of diverse communities in a place, you really see the value. Absolutely. And, and often the ones that don't have that component are the ones that don't succeed. I have a natural bias toward preservation, but I'm not a developer or I'm not, and I'm not a city planner. They usually need more than the, um, as the, the writer in the book said, you know, they need a, more than a, but it's a heritage building argument to, to convince them to um, adapt rather than demolish. So, so how do you convince decision makers that adaptive reuse is the way to go? Well, and I think this is why, again, uh, at least, you know, from the Hong Kong side of it, I actually think the government is so inspirational because they, you know, with the revitalization scheme, um, that was a really amazing initiative and something that really encouraged more projects like that. And, and so in many ways, the decision makers didn't have to be convinced in the same way that I feel like I'm encountering here now in British Columbia, um, because we have different issues here. Um, seismic upgrading is a really big hurdle that I feel like we didn't really think or talk about as much in the Asian context, at least in the cities we were looking at. Uh, And it's prohibitively expensive and challenging to seismically upgrade these old buildings that were built for a very different code. And so, so often it will be, it's just easier to demolish and rebuild. And I, and I find it heartbreaking and very frustrating. And that's why I think the Shanghai chapter actually, I think is really interesting because they talk a little bit about the need for that compromise. Okay, we can't follow the exact same regulations. It's okay if the banister is a little bit lower, things like that. Whereas I find certain jurisdictions, you will find a lot of pushback where they go, no, we have these laws and these regulations and that's what it needs to be. And there's not gonna be any wiggle room and you can't convince me otherwise. And that's really challenging. And I think it's, it's, it's a loss to the community and the streetscape and all of these elements. But uh, I think the truth of it is, is you have to try. <laughs> you have to try to convince people that find the, the additional expense is worth it because of what you're able to save. Um, but it's not an easy, an easy ask or an easy answer, I would argue. Lynn, anything to add? I was thinking about one of the big projects in Hong Kong, um, the uh, central police station um, compound and a very good um, conservation architect was in charge of that project. And he was constantly negotiating, you know, with local authorities to get relief from very tight, stringent requirements. And he was able to do that by saying, we can do something different but it still meets your requirements. So essentially for some projects, you need to have a willing uh, planner who understands that there are other ways to achieve the requirements of law. And I think a champion, right? I would argue that in so many of these projects, there is, it's a champion either on the team, it's a champion in the city, you know, they're, they're so often it's a little bit of, of personal 
perseverance and goodwill, I think, is what is how a lot of these projects ended up coming coming about, truthfully. Yeah. But, but then, Katie, immediately, by the way, this is not necessarily something Katie and I have rehearsed. You, you appreciate that, I'm No, sure. it's, and this is just how we, we used to teach. Like, they, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think, I think if I reflect on all the, the, not all the sites, but many of the places that we chose as case studies, in some ways they were ideal scenarios. And what you find in many places that you don't have as willing a body to push through adaptive reuse projects. And Katie, I'm thinking about here in Canada, particularly and so you, Doug Ford's not not a good partner. Oh my God! Not, not <laughs> Don't even go there. I am, I am shocked. I am shocked. <laughs> sorry, oh. sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, well, you should be shocked. Uh, we thought his brother was bad enough, but you know, but he's <laughs> he's following in the same pattern. Any anyway, but what increasingly because I'm now here in a very large, very diverse very interesting urban city, urban, all cities are urban, um, <laughs> but there are so many buildings that are falling by the wayside because people don't fully understand that adaptive reuse is not just for high level, so-called important heritage buildings. And, and I think the real challenge that I see with adaptive reuse is, is helping communities understand that the so-called ordinary buildings, the vernacular buildings are every much in the part, important part of communities as the so-called high level buildings and that we have to look to their adaptive reuse too. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think it's sort of um, encouraging creative thinking I think that's one thing that I find so exciting with adaptive reuse as approach, no matter what the building is, is how creative can you be? You know, what what neat ideas can you throw in to this building? And it, and, and I hope that the book shows it really isn't one size fits all. Every no. building is different. Every building has a different story. And there's so many possibilities with each individual one. Sorry, Lynn. And Katie, it isn't just a building. It could be an industrial complex. Mm -hmm. It could be a streetscape that has been recognized given official status. Um, so it's just standing back and saying, we've got a resource here. How are we going to use it? Who's going to benefit? Who will benefit most? Where do we put money? Is it public money? Is it private money? So it's like a matrix. Well, and that's one thing that I think in comparing Asia to North America that is very interesting and challenging is the money piece. You know, we pay such higher taxes here that I think it is a lot harder to get public buy-in for heritage because there's so many other issues at play. You know, there, there's homeless issues, there's healthcare issues, there's all these other things that I think take greater priority over a heritage project. Whereas I think in Asia, because people pay less tax, the government has more money though, surprisingly. <laughs> um, I, I think they can be, you know, there's greater willingness for these types of heritage projects. And it really is truly inspirational and astonishing how much money the government and, and private enterprise is willing to put into these projects. But the results I think are worth it. You know, when you see 
these beautiful buildings sort of given a new lease on life, it really is, it's worth all the blood, sweat and tears and, and investment, I think. Yeah. I'm obviously biased. <laughs> but how, so how much, and you mentioned this a couple of days, how much money are we talking about? It's, it's, it's millions and millions of dollars. And, and, you know, so I actually, I brought um, a group of, of Canadian, how can I describe them? Um, bureaucrats, you know, I brought them to Hong Kong and Malaysia and Singapore, you know, to look at these types of projects. And, and I love the Hong Kong Chinese. They're very candid. They will tell you how much all these things cost. And these civil servants couldn't believe what they were hearing <laughs> that, that these, these amounts of money were spent and, and, and that was okay. And look at the results. And I, unfortunately, that will never work here. You know, you will never get that buy-in uh, from the public, which is, it's just so heartbreaking. So the, the authors of the chapter on Shanghai uh, make a great point that I, I hadn't thought about before. Um, they start off by writing that Shanghai has been heavily influenced by the West. And that influence extends to um, heritage conservation and adaptive reuse. Um, and even so, there's, there's this real tension between development and conservation. How has the Shanghai government's approach changed since the early 80s? From the very beginning, have been very impressed um, by Shanghai government's recognition of the importance of looking at heritage districts or heritage conservation districts to do holistic planning. And, and I think there are either 12 or 13 districts within the heart of Shanghai. And they have really, really benefited um, from this kind of thinking. So there's holistic planning, holistic designation of heritage resources. And of course, then that leads to, I think, increased opportunity for protection. And I think there was also, as I said earlier, it's sort of a, a little bit more willingness to, to be flexible and to recognize, okay, so there are these requirements, but how can we work around it? You know, even on the, sim the simple level of we require um, sprinklers on the ceiling. Okay, you don't want to damage the ceiling, fine. A compromise, you can put it on the wall. You know, they, I think there was a level of, um, of compromise and understanding that you don't necessarily see in every municipality. And I think there was sort of just a worldliness to Shanghai and an appreciation and an understanding that we have these resources, we have people who are willing to work with them um, and to not just demolish them. Let's try and find a way to, to make it work. Um, and I think the, the projects really speak to that. Moving on to Singapore, um, of all the cities that you look at, that's the city that has historically been, been most concerned with the formation of a national um, identity. Has that translated into conservation and reuse or has that translated into new development? Hmm. That is a good question. It's a very good um, question. So uh, cer certainly from, the, from as long as I've been involved with Singapore, there has been an absolute stress on national identity. Singaporeans first, everyone else welcome, <laughs> but Singaporeans first. And of course, all of this is part of an overall um, agenda for national identity. In the beginning years of conservation, um, there was input from foreign consultants. But, but what you find in the early years is that certain areas are pulled out to celebrate different ethnic groups. It didn't work. 
Um, it became very touristic. It didn't express what, what the government really wanted to obtain as far as creating an image of national identity. So increasingly and most recently, there's been an understanding of the importance of every group in Singapore um, being celebrated appropriately, not being pigeonholed as a conservation area, but being respected in terms of its intangible heritage attributes. So conservation has really broadened and it's now opened up to more community input as to the way forward and what the community wants. And I think um, there are different sagas that have occurred in recent years, but it's clear that the government is more open in a more, I don't want to use the word democratic, it's a bit dangerous, I know, don't, this should not be aired, um, but it's more, open, it's more open to the community. You can use that word on this program. Lynn. There you okay. go. Um, but I would say, Lynn, I think it took some trial and error and some heartache to get there, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, it did. Because essentially what, the, what Singapore, through its URA, did, it said, okay, we're going to put a ring around this particular area and it's going to become Chinatown. Or we're going to put another ring around this area. It's going to be a Malay village. And then, oh, we're going to have little India. And so these became kind of protected areas, isolated, artificial tourist destinations. It was very top down. Oh, absolutely top down. Oh, Whereas yeah. now you have. Yeah, not that much, but there's. They, they a, try. A little, they try a little to be. Bit, a little bit up, yeah. <laughs> Any, but actually, I'd like to go back to a comment that um, I wanted to make about Shanghai. In the mid nineties, I was there to see what was happening along the Bund. And I had, I was fortunate. I was able to talk with a, a, a top ministry person about what was happening within a particular important building. And I probably wasn't quite as delicate in my conversation as I could have been. Um, but I did say, this is a, such an important building. Um, what are your plans for restoring it? She paused. She looked at me. And she said, when we have enough food, when we have enough housing, we'll then look at the buildings. And wow. that has never, ever left me. So... In this whole conversation about adaptive reuse, I think that we have to always keep in mind that it's only possible formally when you've reached a certain level. In countries that are yet to be developed, there's adaptive reuse all the time. But when we begin to see it more formally and in economies that can afford and kind of a more... Uh, perhaps I can say aesthetic upgrade, we have to really think what that means. Yeah. Well, and I think one thing that's quite interesting, you know, I, I'm not sure, Lynn, if you're picturing Myanmar and Yangon. Oh, gosh, um, yes. But what I think was is really neat and, and something that's so important to keep in mind is at least, you know, these old institutional buildings, they are still being used. You know, as Lynn says, the, the adaptive reuse is happening, but it's informal. 
but that's much better than leaving the buildings derelict because it is amazing how much deterioration will accelerate when a building is left empty. Whereas at least if it is, if it is lived in and it is, you know, it, there, it is an amazing marriage that happens between a building and its occupants and, and they give each other life and sustenance (laughs) Um, where where it, when it ends up being empty, that is where you see the deterioration happen and the accelerating rate. And that's when you get to the point where no matter how much money, time and effort you put into it, it will get to a point of being unsalvageable, um, which is just heartbreaking to see, particularly when you do have these, and I guess, as Lynn said earlier, it doesn't necessarily have to be a monumental building. It can also be a vernacular building. Um, and I think, you know, being able to, to give these places life and meaning is just so important. And I think, you know, mentioning Yangon and um, I, I think about all the trips there, Katie, and my work mm-hmm. there. Um, and I would observe with all those very important institutional buildings that were being occupied essentially by people with no other housing option um, because of the way um, uh, the care of buildings um, has turned out in a place like Yangon, even though people are occupying the building, there is no coordinated system for maintaining it in terms of waterproofing it, i.e. leaking from the roof. So this is one of the other issues. Katie's right. The best building is an occupied building, but it has to be maintained at a basic level, just a basic level. Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. (laughs) I just, you know, having read the book, was there a case study that stood out for you? Which project for you did you think was sort of one that made you go, wow? Okay, Katie, I, I have to admit, I read the essays. <gasps> you I didn't read, read the, the case essays. studies. I did not read all the, I did not read all the <gasps> case studies. I, I, I'm sorry. I, you know, I just, I had to be able to be judicious with my, <laughs> with my <laughs> and, I, and I wanted to be able to get enough. <laughs> You know, I want to be conversant enough to be able to, you know, come up with some questions for you. I, I love just, it. I, I, I so made it's a, okay. I, I made a. I, I feel like this is my payback for not having read the post office article. So there you go. <laughs> no, no, it's not at all. Now I, 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 and I didn't see. This is a good lesson for me because I did not, you know, I did not expect to be called out on. Oh, it. you didn't have you did. You didn't expect us to interview you. There you go. You go. No. I, I'm a teacher, and you didn't have your homework. <laughs> yeah. I, I, no, okay. You. Oh man. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's as good a place to end it. Fair as enough. We can. Fair enough. No. Is there anything? Actually, well, before I do though, is there anything I didn't ask that you know you 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 really wanted to sort of get out there and? and... Uh, actually, one thing uh, that uh, that um, I know always comes up in adaptive reuse or repurposing. Um, One of of the big interesting uh, um, conversations that has occurred in the past is, is the new use like the original use or similar to it, or is it okay to have an entirely different new use? And, And they're proponents on both ends. So, there are some people who think the best new use is the one closest to the original use, but other proponents say, uh-uh, it's an empty building and there's someone or something that needs a place. And so we're going to marry those two together. 
But I think you, you take that discussion and you put it into the context of what is best for the community. Well, what I was going to say is I, when I think of certain projects, um, the ones that really stick with me aren't necessarily the ones that are the closest, but I think that have this happy marriage to them. So, you know, Lynn and I have talked a lot about um, in the past about the little Hong Kong example where, you know, historically it was used to store explosives and now it stores wine. And I find that a really nice kind of symmetry, but it's so different to its original use if you really think about it, right? You know, it, there's no military aspect to it now. And, but I think that is a really nice way to kind of honor its original use, but make it relevant and of use to people today. And I, I really do quite like that. Or, or even in the, the, there was an old shop house that is now, uh, that that had a, a Chinese medicine shop in the pot in the bottom, and today now it's used by Baptist University as their school of Chinese medicine. And so it's not exactly what it was before, but kind of adds this nice new layer to it that again sort of has a nod to what it was, but is more relevant and of use to today. So, and I think these are two that are very close examples, but there are others that that are that are more diverse and, and less connected and they still work. But I think it's kind of having those creative elements and those thoughtful connections that just helps to kind of continue the story of the building on. And I, I really, I don't know, I think there's so many possibilities. <laughs> it makes me excited as you can tell. Yeah, well, I'm gonna add something else knowing a number of universities. You have university campuses that were built 100 years ago, 150 years ago, or 300 years ago. And, and their use has not maintained, uh, has not been maintained exactly as the original use with some exceptions. So they're being repurposed in many different ways. And I think it's really interesting to be able to stand back and think about that. And in that introduction I wrote for the book, um, I make the, the point of uh, quoting a young, PhD student from Australia who said, maybe the challenge is when we're designing new buildings to make sure they're designed with adaptive reuse in mind. I was thinking, I was thinking about that as well, you know, because there are going to be new buildings built and, and then, you know, at some point they will be. Exactly. So you had your quote in the intro and actually the quote for me in the conclusion, which I wrote that I really like, was from the Australian Design Guide for Heritage, where it talks about heritage places create the setting for contemporary life, connecting communities to the past and helping to shape futures. And I feel like that really kind of embodies everything that we're thinking about with adaptive reuse. I think it ties it up nicely. Uh, Dr. Katie Kummer and Professor Linda Stefano are the editors of Asian Revitalization, Adaptive Reuse in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore. You can find the book on Amazon. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really, really, really love talking to you. Thank you well, for having us. It was, it it was, was great. Treat. Great. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it for the Beijing Session, Season 1. The book is Asian Revitalization. Check for it on Amazon, and I'll add a link to the show notes. So no show next week. I will see you in August. <laughs>